Well, good morning. My name is Joel. I'm one of the pastors here. Um, if you're new or you haven't been here that many times and you're wondering why is this guy wearing sandals, let me just address it. My, I've had nerve issues and feet problems for the last while, and it immensely helps to not have something on top of my shoes as much. So if you'll excuse my footwear, that would be wonderful. But um, if you grab your Bibles, oh, and uh, we're going to take the offering here in just a moment. So while we're taking the offering, you can also grab your Bibles and turn to Galatians 3. Lord willing, we will be uh, finishing Galatians today, or excuse me, finishing Galatians 3 today. And while we're taking the offering, you're turning there. Thank you for everybody who came out to the birthday party uh, on uh, Friday, that was a joy. It was great to see so many of you. It's pretty incredible that God's been faithful and kind to us. This little little church in Bloomington, and he's kept his promises for 12 years now. And he's been merciful to us, and he's been disciplining us. And he's been there through the ups and the downs and the fights and the joys and the highs and lows. And we're not the same as a church as we were 12 years ago, and none of us that have been here for 12 years are the same as we were 12 years ago, and that's still probably the case if you've been here for six years. But even if you've been here for six months or six weeks, we're glad that you're here, and it's a joy to be with you. Um, I will be honest and say that um, Summit today might be a little hard to follow if you haven't been here at all for any of the parts in chapter 3. Uh, it's hard to get around that. So if you're confused, I'll try to be as helpful as I can to step back. But if you hear me talking about the covenant of Abraham or the law or Moses, and that's a little confusing, you don't really know what's going on, and you want to kind of hear those sermons, you can talk to me or Esteban afterwards. We'll get you the links to those sermons. Um, to try to catch you up if you're interested in that. But please turn to chapter 3, verse 21, and I will read to the end of the chapter, and then we will pray. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? Certainly not. For if a law had been given that could give life, then righteousness would indeed be by the law. But the scripture imprisoned everything under sin so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female and female. For you are all one in Christ. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word and thank you for the book of Galatians and the ways that you've instructed us and taught us and helped us understand the, 
distinctions and how the law meets up with the promises that you gave Abraham, how the law meets up with the gospel, what role it plays in our life, and I pray that you would continue to teach us this as we go through Galatians in this morning. I pray that you would encourage us and give us faith in Jesus Christ and the work that he's done on the cross. Thank you for paying for our sins, and thank you for counting us righteous and making us righteous. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, we've been following Paul's argument through Galatians. He's been waging war against his opponents who have been trying to preach a different gospel message. Not that there is another gospel message, but they're teaching. Paul came in, taught these people the gospel. They believed. Then some Jews came in and started to add to it. They say, Paul doesn't really know what he's talking about. He's not qualified to d tell you what this is. And so Paul, this is Paul's letter, refuting them and teaching them sound doctrine. Now, I mentioned this before, and it'll come up again here in a second. It's important to remember as we go into this passage that when Paul is talking about the law, he's not just talking about, like, the Ten Commandments or the commands of God, okay? He is talking about that. But he's not just talking about that. He's talking about the ceremonial law, the requirements that come with that, the sacrificial, the sacrifice, sacrificial system that was in play. And that's good to remember because it'll help you understand this passage more if you can understand that he's not just talking about, like, thou shalt not kill when he says the law. Okay? Paul B. continues in verse 21 with this accusatory question. He says, is the law then contrary to the promises of God? And the answer is, of course it's not. If you think so, you blaspheme God. That's kind of his implication. You think God contradicts himself like that? That's kind of what Paul's asking. We talked about this in previous weeks, but the, the same God who gave promises to Abraham and made a covenant with Abraham, he didn't forget that he had done that when Moses came along and then he gave him the law. And so to imply otherwise that he had kind of messed up or changed his mind or, you know, was contradicting himself, well, that's a huge accusation against a holy God. For if the law had been given that could give life, well, then righteousness would be by the law. If the law had power to justify you, had power to make you right with God, then it would be opposed to the promises of God that God made back earlier with Abraham. But Paul has already argued that the law was not given to give life, but he says back in verse 19 that the law was added because of transgressions. And we talked about last time I preached how the law was added because of transgressions. And so the law is not opposed to the promises that God made Abraham. And Paul refuses to allow any other means of justification apart from faith. It's not as if Israel could have chosen to do the law thing or they could choose to do the faith thing. And there are two options. It's not acceptable to Paul. It's not how it works. That's not how God set it up. Paul is refusing to allow that option to exist. And so he says in verse 22, But Scripture imprisoned everything under sin, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. Now, when Paul 
uses the word scripture in verse 22. What he has in his sight is the law. And we see that in the next verse. His point is this, the law didn't give life. It didn't give righteousness to its people. Instead, it imprisoned everything under sin. It doesn't give righteousness. Instead, it takes away the illusion of any righteousness that you think you might have. It shows us how unrighteous we actually are because you see how massively you failed to keep the law. It's like a prison. You turn this way, there's a wall. Stuck. Turn this way, there's a wall. Turn this way. You can't get out. There's no way to sneak around it. And that's one of the primary purposes of the law. How many of you were here when I taught on the Ten Commandments during worship, kind of five, ten-minute little lessons, if you remember that at all? Well, pretty much the entire point of that time was to show us how far we come to even obeying the Ten Commandments. See, some people, you might read the Ten Commandments and you think, well, I've kept those. I've done those decently. I haven't killed anybody. I haven't committed adultery. But when you actually dive down into the law, you realize how deep these commandments go. And Jesus says that. You might be familiar with that in the Gospels. Jesus does that with two of them. He talks about committing adultery. You've heard it say, and he talks about murder, right? You've heard it say that thou shalt not kill. But even your sinful anger is condemning you. You've heard that you shouldn't commit adultery. But even the lustful thought that you had last night or this morning or five days ago, even that is condemning. That's the case for every commandment, not just those two. Honor your father and mother. It isn't just talking about your biological mom and dad. Yes, it is talking about that. But you have spiritual fathers. You have spiritual mothers. You have other authorities that God has put in place, and you have failed to honor them. And so the point of the law was the point, it wasn't given to you to make you feel like you were doing pretty good. But rather, the opposite to tell you how miserably you fail, and it's not even close. I remember I used to tell Josh that I didn't think his sermons were gracious enough. <laughs> you remember this? <laughs> Probably a decade ago. No, no. Oh, good. I shouldn't have reminded my boss. <laughs> Josh was patient with me, and he's still patient with me. I would have lost it on Joel 10 years ago. Uh, but Josh is patient. And um, most of you, I'm not the only person that thought that. Okay. If you try to, some of you might try to lie about it. But if you were here a decade ago, you knew our church, we had no stomach to hear the law. And Josh would preach, and you would feel the tension, and you could cut the tension in the room with a knife. You're all just on pins and needles. Because many of us came into this church either with very little church background, new Christians, we didn't know a lot. Lots of us maybe kind of grew up in church, but we didn't really go to 
churches that ever preached on the law. And so now we're hearing God's law preached. We're hearing somebody put their finger down on our sin, and we don't like it. And your first inclination, if you're not used to that, is you kind of bristle at it. I don't like that this guy is telling me about my sin. He seems mean. Isn't this Jesus thing all just nice and grace and everything's happy all the time? We didn't want anybody pointing out our sin, making us feel guilty and having to deal with it and confess it and repent from it, even though it would have been good for us and even though it was good for us. But that is what the law does and that's what Paul is saying when he says it imprisoned, the law imprisoned everything in verses 22 and 23. So there's no hope. There is no remedy except to throw this idea away that you could ever gain righteousness by the law, by your good works. And the only hope that we have is to place our faith and trust in Christ. In verse 22, that can kind of be a throwaway statement at the end of the verse, but it is one of the most incredible in the book of Galatians, and we'll talk about it here a little more in a minute. The law imprisons you. I think I made that clear. When you think upon your sin, it should make you feel disgusting. It should make you feel guilty. Because it's rotten. Your sin is rotten. It's gross. It's impure. It's transgressing against a holy God. we all have it. We all still struggle with it. The world hates that you would point it out. But sadly, sometimes we can hear that our sin is bad, our sin is gross, our sin is terrible. But it doesn't really affect us. Our hearts are callous. Any of you ever have... Don't raise your hand callous feet. Some of you probably have calluses on your feet. I have calluses on my fingers, especially on my left hand, from playing guitar. Bruised and pushed and smashed my fingertips up against the guitar for decades now. So I have this extra thick kind of skin right here on my fingers, and it's, it's grown there because it, the callus grows to kind of protect itself from the friction and the excess pressure. And there's no nerve endings in, in calluses. And so, therefore, I have like less sensation in my fingertips than I do in this hand or what a normal person probably does. But your hearts can get that way. And you can hear about how Jesus saved sinners like you and how you fail to keep the law, but it doesn't really affect you. It doesn't burden you when you think about your sin. When is the last time that you were laid bare before God with your sin and you were crushed by the amount of failure that still exists in your life? The amount of sin still waging war against your spirit and your flesh. Or have you become comfortable with the amount of sin that's there? 
And has your heart become callous? First Corinthians. Many of you know this passage. In chapter 6, starting in verse 9, it says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. This isn't a comprehensive list of sins. Some of you may even look at that list and think you're doing pretty well. Some of you won't. But it should feel like a weight when you read that. Do you not know? Do you know? The unrighteous do not inherit the kingdom of God. You know that, right? They don't. Instead, God punishes them for eternity in hell for their unrighteousness. Do not be fooled. The sexually immoral, the adulterers, nor the homosexual man will inherit the kingdom of God. Now again, some of you will think, well, I'm not gay. Uh, I'm not sleeping with somebody who's not my wife. I'm not looking at pornography. So I'm good. But that thought that you had about that other person, or that glance at the girl in the shopping mall, or that ad that you stared at too long, or that social media video that you shouldn't have clicked on or looked at, that's condemning too. And some of you are likely playing too loose with this, and you're letting little things slip, and you're not repenting over these smaller sins, and you're in big danger. Listen, many of you come from broken families. Affairs never happen because somebody knocks on your door and says, hey, would you like to commit adultery? That's never happened. No, affairs happen because a spouse starts glancing at somebody else, noticing somebody else, talking with somebody else, could be at church, could be at the gym, could be at work, kind of flirt a little bit, but it's innocent, it's just, you know, it just happened a couple times. Kind of makes you feel good, though. And then it's lunch during work, you know, we're just, you know, people were going to go, but then just you two showed up. And then it's dinner after work, the next step, and the next step. And some of you hear that, and you think, well, I'm way back at step two, so I'm probably safe, right? I'm not that far down that path yet. But you're a fool if you think you're safe, and you're playing with your sin. And your pet sins may seem harmless to you, and you may seem like you can control them, but they will devour you. This is how sin works. I heard a story years ago. Who knows if it's true? I can't remember where I heard it. But I heard a story of this young girl who had a pet snake. And she would, she would sleep with the snake. 
kind of in our bed. And as it grew, uh, it, it was getting pretty long. And as it grew, it used to sleep kind of just in a pile, curled up on the bed. As it grew, and it was getting longer, she would wake up, and it would be kind of laying next to her, stick straight. So that was weird. And kind of night after night, it started just sleeping that way now. And one day they were telling somebody about this who knew more about snakes and how she would wake up and the snake would be kind of, you know, almost her whole length. They said, get rid of the snake now. Not expecting to hear that. And they found that the snake was lying next to her because it was sizing her up to see if it could eat her. If it was big enough. There could be potential food. You cannot play games with your sin. And if any of you are playing games with sexual morality, it needs to be confessed if it's hidden. And I'm not just talking about what you're viewing, or I'm talking about if you're having thoughts or flirting with someone who's not your spouse. You need to confess it to your pastor. If you're a woman, you can talk to one of our wives. But you need to do it today. Because your sin is sizing you up, and one day it will eat you if you play with it. Calvin said the human heart is an idol factory. First Corinthians talks about idolatry. All of us make idols out of pretty much, we can make an idol out of anything. All of us are guilty of idolatry. It could be money, it could be house, it could be the desire for an easy life or an easy time through college, it could be the illusion of a life without trials or maybe easier trials. It could be your hobbies. It could be your kids, your spouse. All these things could easily be more important to you than God. It doesn't take much. What do you value in your heart more than you value God? could be good grades, your reputation, being thought, of other, uh, being thought of by others as the wise one or the honest one or the hardworking one, the genuine, the smart one. There are countless things that our hearts are prone to love more than God. And you can be honest about that, that it exists in your heart and there are things that your idol is about. You can be honest and live in reality about that. Or you can pretend that they don't really exist and not get help and not confess it to God. Some of you are stealing from your employers, be it laziness, or actually maybe you're taking something that's physically not yours. If you're playing games with alcohol or not being honest about your struggle with alcohol, you're no different than the girl with the snake just playing with it right next to her. And one day it will devour you. I want you to be honest about your sin before God. When we look at the commands found in the law like we just did, it should feel like a prison. Okay? It shouldn't feel nice. The law is good and we can praise God for it, but when we look at ourselves, we should see that we're imprisoned by the law. It's a big reason why God gave it. To show us that our righteousness could not come by works of the law.
Paul says in verse 23, now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, like it just said, imprisoned until the coming faith will, would be revealed. Now, when Paul's talking about faith here, he's not saying that faith didn't exist in the Old Testament, okay? It's not, it's when he says, waiting until faith came, he's not saying, well, before Jesus came, faith didn't exist, okay? We've already established that Israel was also saved by faith in the Old Testament. When we looked at Abraham, you can look at Hebrews 11, and see all the people who live by faith in the Old Testament. So faith is not saying that faith didn't exist in the Old Testament. Instead, Paul is talking about the full revelation of everything that the law pointed to and that the prophets spoke of in the coming Messiah. When that culminated, when Jesus came and died. And remember, I told you, when Paul's talking about the law, he's not just talking about the commands, okay? Like we just read the, some of the commands of God. He's talking about the ceremonies and the sacrifices. And so these ceremonies, they were shadows of things to come. And Israel would feel their need during these ceremonies to be forgiven. They would feel their uncleanness and they would feel the pollution of their hearts when they're, when they're before this animal who's done nothing wrong, it's offended no one. And it's slaughtered because of their sin. You imagine seeing that and then trying to go home and sleep at night. If you had any sense about your sin, that would weigh on you. You did all this wrong, this animal did nothing wrong, it gets killed. This was life before the faith that Paul's talking about, the full revelation of what Scripture was pointing to, which is Jesus Christ. And so Paul talks about the law as being a prison, as we've already discussed, and he also talks about it being the schoolmaster. Your translation in the ESV probably says guardian. Therefore the law came, verse 24, I like the NASB translation better, I think it's more helpful. Therefore the law came, the law has become our tutor, or our schoolmaster, some translations say. Therefore the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. Now you have a schoolmaster, you have a tutor. Some of you are in high school, some of you are in middle school, some of you are in college. And you might go to a tutor for a certain time period. You go to school, you get tutored, but then you're graduated and you're on to something better. You don't go back to that tutor to learn calculus anymore. You graduated from that. And that's what Paul's implying here in, verse, in these verses as he's describing the use of law. He's, he goes on to say in verse 25, but now faith has come and we are no longer under a guardian, or other versions say tutor, which is probably a clearer translation. We're no longer under the tutor that is the law. Now Paul isn't saying that the law is no, now it's useless. There's no use in the law. We can just throw it out. We don't need the Ten Commandments. We don't need any of that. That's not what he's saying when he's talking of us kind of moving on and graduating from it. Beware of anybody who tries to pit Jesus' words against the rest of the Old Testament or against Paul. 
Anybody that tries to tell you that they just follow Jesus' words, they might say, like, well, Jesus, Jesus didn't talk about homosexuality, so I just follow Jesus, or something like that. They might use it for many other reasons. One, that's not true. He does talk about it. Two, that's not at all what Jesus said. He said, do not think that I have come to abolish the law. I haven't come, this is Jesus, I haven't come to abolish the law. Instead, I've come, to, uh, I've come to fulfill them. I've come to fulfill the law. Okay? So you can't toss away the Old Testament. You can't toss away what Paul says because you say, I want to follow Jesus. Lots of people will try to tell you that these days. Don't listen to them. I don't have time to argue for this now, but I, I will read a quote. Because the question still stands. Well, okay, so what about the law? Do we... Do we not use it anymore? Are the Ten Commandments useless? Do we not follow it? Calvin says this, but here the question is again put, is the law so abolished that we have nothing to do with it? I answer, the law, so far as it is a rule of life, a bridle to keep us in the fear of the Lord, a spur to correct the sluggishness of our flesh, so far, in short, as it is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the believers may be instructed in every good work, is as much in force as ever and remains untouched. Okay? Ten Commandments, thou shalt not kill, still in effect. If you want to talk more about that, we can talk more about that. So the question remains, though, in what sense was the law abolished, as Paul's referring to in verse 25? Again, remember, law is not just commandments, it's ceremonies. I've already said the ceremonies were these shadows of things to come. They're pointing out in the distance about Jesus. The sacrifices were there to point to Christ, but we don't need those sacrifices anymore. We don't need those ceremonies anymore because Christ has come. And so the thing that they were pointing to is here, has come. We don't need those sacrifices anymore because Christ has come and he is the once for all sacrifice. So in that sense, in the ways like these sacrifices where that would point to a need to be forgiven and to actually have our sin atoned for, those ways we've graduated from. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. We're not imprisoned by the law anymore, and we're not under the schoolmaster's reign instructing us, but we're now sons of God through faith. For as many of you who were as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And one of the great things about baptism is you look at what's been done outwardly, and it points to what's been done inwardly. It helps us remember and he gives us confidence that we have we've been washed by the blood of Christ. We have put on Christ. Paul uses this metaphor. It's like you, you put on a piece of clothing. And this is, this is wonderful. You put on this piece of clothing. You put on Christ. And God sees Christ. And he doesn't see your sin. 
the good news of the gospel, and the big point of the scriptures is to tell us that God has not left us to ourselves in our sins. The law is there to tell you about your sin. You should feel guilty about it. You should confess it. But God didn't leave you there. Which is incredible because he's the offended party. He's the one that's been sinned against. He's the one that's been wronged. If you've been wronged, you want somebody to make it right. You want somebody to pay. Somebody steals from you, you want it back. But God, being more wronged than any of us have ever been wronged, instead of punishing us, instead of making us pay, he decides to make a promise to Adam and to Noah and to Abraham and to Moses and to David, and he decides to clothe, clothe us in a similar way, in a more fuller way, that he clothed Adam and Eve in the garden after they realized that they were naked, after they had sinned. This is why G Genesis 3 is such a, a beautiful picture and a shadow of what's to come. Maybe you've had dreams like that where you're kind of standing up in front giving a lecture and you're in your underwear. If you think about that, if you think if you just like look down and you didn't have, you would feel so ashamed and so embarrassed right now. You would run as fast as you can to get out of here and get cover. But our condition's even worse than that. We're guilty, we're ashamed, we're embarrassed. Not because we accidentally found ourselves unclothed, it's even worse. We sinned and we chose to be impure and to mock and spit at and curse God. And our conscience bears witness against us and condemns us. And we feel this weight and this shame for our sin. But just as God clothed Adam... And Eve physically, he has clothed us in Christ. Outwardly and symbolically through baptism, showing us and reminding us what God has done spiritually inside of us who have faith. Reminding us that when God looks at you and he looks at me, he doesn't see you in your sin, but he sees Christ in his righteousness. The law can't make you clean, but Christ can make you clean. God will not look at any man who tries to find his righteousness through the law and see a clean man. It's not possible. Instead, he will see a sinner guilty of transgressions, but God will and he does look at any who have put on Christ. As Paul says, that in the presence of God, people are so closely united with him, so closely united with Christ, he says they bear the name and character of Christ and are viewed in him rather than in themselves. When God makes you one with him in Christ, it's, it's even closer. The, the shirt analogy isn't even good enough because you're one with Christ. It's not just like this shirt that you're wearing on top of your clothing. You're actually one with Christ. And when God looks at you, he looks at Christ and sees Christ. We all have seen images, or maybe we've personally known it. You've probably seen movies of a father disapproving of his son. But this is the opposite about how God feels about you if you're in Christ. So if you're feeling the weight of your sin, 
whether you're a Christian or not. The good news is that you confess your sin to God and you can confess it to others and you can be forgiven and cleansed of all your unrighteousness and all of your guilt can be washed away if you trust in Christ and you put on Christ. It is not fair and you do not deserve it. But because of the love of God, it is the truth of those who believe. And so if you haven't trusted in Christ today, if you're not a Christian, you can trust in Christ this morning. And I would encourage you, if you have any questions about becoming a Christian or what that means, to talk to me or anybody that was up here this morning, and we would love to talk to you. If you still don't know what to do with your guilt, come talk to one of the pastors. And we would love nothing more than to help you have confidence that you've actually put on Christ and that God approves of you because he sees you united with Christ and one with Christ. Because you are a son of God, you are part of Abraham's offspring, as Paul says in verse 29. And I'll make a comment real quick about verse 28, because it's important in our day, and maybe we'll come back to it if we need to talk more about it. So, Paul talks about us being united with Christ, talks about baptism in verse 27, and then he says in verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or female, for you are all one with Christ. And if you are, if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to the promise. Now, some people, some, even Christians, some egalitarians, people who claim that there are no differences between men and women, men and women are just the same, Anything a man can do, a woman can do. Anything a woman can do, a man can do. Nature tells us that's just foolishness, but still we're going to try to push that lie. They love this verse. They love this verse because they say, See, look, there's no differences. There's no male. There's no female. No differences between man and woman. Paul says it right here in verse 28. So don't talk about responsibilities that a man has. Don't talk about responsibilities that a woman has or that a, a wife has that's different than the responsibilities that a husband has before God. Don't talk about that because Paul says right here, no male, no female. We're all the same. They're just fools. Just ignore them. Paul is not saying that there is no difference between man and woman. That is not the point of this passage. Anybody who's honest about that can clearly see that by what we've just read. In regards to those who can put on Christ and who can be Abraham's offspring, yes, no one is excluded. Not the Jews, not the Gentiles, not the slave, not the free man, not the woman, not the man. All can be one with Christ. And praise God for that. But don't play their silly games when they try to make this passage mean more than what it actually means. It's not what Paul's talking about. And it would make Paul a madman anyway because he talks about man's responsibilities and 
and marriage and, and woman's responsibilities in marriage in Ephesians 5. So he would just be, like, you would just have to throw all this away because you would say, this man is crazy because he can't make up his mind. Or you can be honest, and we can see clearly that Paul is talking about who can be united with Christ, who can be the offspring of Abraham. He's not getting rid of the responsibilities. So if you hear anybody make that silly argument, just remind yourself when they do that, just remind yourself, you know what? This is good news, not because of what they're saying, but I can be made one with Christ because that's what that passage is talking about. I can be a part of Abraham's offspring. I am one of Abraham's offspring. Be thankful that it's not because of the law that you're Abraham's offspring or that you're made righteous, but rather because Christ and it's not just for Jews, it's not just for Gentiles, it's for all who would believe. Be thankful for the gospel when you're overwhelmed by your sin. When the law is doing its job and it's pushing on you and it's convicting you, as it should and as it was designed to, read Galatians 3 and remind yourself of what God has done to redeem you from your sin. Confess your sin to God, confess it to others, and walk in the joy and the freedom of the gospel. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the good news. Thank you that you do not count our sins against us. Thank you instead that you sent your Son to live a perfect life and to fulfill the law in all the ways that we can't and in all the ways that we fall short. Jesus did not. And then instead of just being exalted as he was worthy of, you punished him on the cross. You crushed him because you loved us. And we don't understand it and we are not deserving of it and we don't know why you would do that for your enemies and you would turn us into family. But we are immensely and eternally grateful for it, Father. Thank you that all our sins can be forgiven. Thank you for the law and its perfection. Thank you for how it leads us to you and it puts us on our knees and it helps us cry for mercy and it kills our pride. And thank you that you meet us with your kindness and your mercy. Father, you are good to us, far, far better than we could ever ask or imagine. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.